Let's turn to Mark, the seventh chapter, together today. We're going to look at the, um, we're going to try to look at the first, all the verses of this chapter, verses 1 through 23. It is a complete unit. It's hard to um, break it into pieces. The um, first portion is supportive of the last portion, so I'm already giving you apology for part two, which will probably be next week. But maybe not, who knows. Can we stand as we read, as we honor God's word and read this together? If you'd like to read out loud, it's fine. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. They observe many traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have, left, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. Anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by the, your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into the stomach, and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the, the way in which you assure us of our righteousness. For we are not righteous because we are intrinsically righteous. We are righteous because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our original unrighteousness and our perpetual unrighteousness, the acts that come in our lives. And he's redeemed us, he's purchased us, and he has forgiven our sins. As a result, we, on the one hand, stand before a holy and righteous God with a righteousness that covers us, the righteousness of our Savior. And on the other hand, we see changes <coughs> taking place within our lives. Old chains break. Old habits. Old 
unrighteous deeds fall away. But we never glory, Lord. Let us never glory in anything but the cross of Christ. For it is all by grace, according to your great mercy, that you've poured out upon us through him. Help us to see this text clearly today and expound it clearly. We might be disciples of our Lord in obedience to his commands. Open our eyes today, Lord, that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. God bless you. You remember in our last study together that we talked about the feeding of 5,000. And I think you recall that immediately after Jesus performed that miracle, that he quickly sent his disciples away, and he then dismissed the crowds. Very, it says quickly he did this. And we remember from the Gospel of John that in a similar situation, Jesus did the same thing. And the phrase was used, he did this because he knew it was in the heart of men who wanted to make him king. And so we, we talked about that last time, this change of the way that Jesus was introducing both himself and his mission. It's very important for us to see this because it's Mark's, it really is Mark's message throughout. As we saw him in his training of disciples, saw him showing power over principalities and over disease, over even the natural elements through the stilling of the storm and the waves. And then following that, we see him doing these miraculous things like walking on water. And it isn't interesting how even we today remember the walking on the water. We remember the walking on the water. We remember the feeding of the 5,000. Later, in, other, in one of the other Gospels, Luke's Gospel, when he says, came to the other side, the disciples met him and wondered where he was, and they were anxious. And it doesn't say what they were talking about, but his response to them was, you want me because of the bread and the fishes. Even his disciples are changing. He's seeking to change their perspective on what is taking place around them. And these were always aimed at kind of a low reson reson resonation to people. We don't see him preaching another sermon, say, to the, the multitude of people he fed to try to inform them. Or even with his disciples, any great kind of detail, except when we come to this text of Scripture. And we see a tremendous confrontation of viewpoint here. The Pharisees, as he said, they came from Jerusalem to see him. And as a result, he's going to attack, literally attack something that is the foundation of Judaism and how it's viewed. And that is this distinction between the oral tradition the teaching of the elders, and the law itself. This had developed to such an extent that, that by the time of this writing, there was a whole different perspective on the whole Old Testament. And historically, we see Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone, and the Pharisees, there's, there's this view by the, by the Pharisees that what he brought down was two things. He brought down the Torah the law, and he also brought down the teaching of the elders and how it's going to be applied. It's one thing to say that you have the Torah and then you have its application. It's one thing. But when you see the application actually changing the law itself is what Jesus is talking about. This is even today, the Mishnah. You, know, you can get copies of the Mishnah. It's called the fence around the law. And as you look at it, if you get an English version, you just open it up, and actually, you open it up that way, because it's, it's backward, it's, not, it's forward for them, and it's, never mind. It's Hebrew, so it starts on the right. And what you see as you read this, is you physically, physically see the text of the Bible 
Bible text like this, and then around it, literally around it, are notes. And those notes are the composition of the rabbinic law, how the rabbis over time have defined and interpreted and shown the meaning of the texts of Scripture. And this was not something that started when Mishnah was in existence at the time of Jesus. So this was an Old Testament phenomenon that took place. And then you see that, well, there's a Tosefta, and the Tosefta is then a, more, a less blocked thing, and that's the rules or interpretation of the Mishnah, which interprets the law. And so you literally get two levels away from the law itself in interpreting what it means. And the Pharisees are talking about this very subject. And they're talking about it in the area of ceremonial cleanness. A lot of different subjects, but they're talking about it here in the context of ceremonial cleanliness and what it means to be clean. We think, oh, well, you know, the Bible's full of all kinds of hygiene. Helps us, really helps us with hygiene. You know, washing hands is good. I have a little three-year-old, and we talk about washing hands a lot. We were at the orchard yesterday up in, uh, near Damascus, and she's over rubbing some pole with her hand. First thing, and then she goes, <laughs> her mother goes, don't put that in your mouth. And so she's got this feeling that, why? You know, she looks like, like, why? What's on this? You know, that's germs. Well, you go over there and you get a little squish, squish. You know, those little things they have on every other pole they, around the place. So you kind of wash your hands. And so we think, oh, that's good. The Bible teaches us how to be clean. And the Pharisees are just concerned about being clean here. Well, far from it. In fact, the priests were the only ones that were required to wash their hands in the Old Testament. The priests had to wash their hands. And that was only when they went into the temple. And, of course, there was a general rule in the book of Leviticus that you washed your hands if you touched something that was defiled, such as human waste or a dead body, or a woman who was in her menstrual cycle. These, you wash your hands to become clean in that way, but cleanliness had completely been reinterpreted from this sense of ceremonial, ceremonially washing your hands before you offered sacrifice so that you're showing that you have a clean heart walking into a, to a um, context where you're, a priest is going to offer sacrifices to a huge array of things that the Pharisees did in order to keep themselves, quote, clean. And this was a time when the Gentile populations around Judea were growing. By the way, this is all the introduction. That's what I was telling you earlier, right? The, the, the text is pretty simple. It's the introduction that, that really nails you. So we, we see that there's this growing population. We saw it already. Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee at those Gennesaret caves, you know, and you see this composition of pigs being herded around and taken care of by people. That's a Gentile presence. I mean, that's, that's just plain and simple. And then the Decapolis that's below that to the south on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, it's a whole Gentile nations. The Gentile nations were there. That's where Jesus went and spent weeks preaching the gospel, preaching about himself and doing miracles and talking about the kingdom of God coming. You say, well, that's because he's looking for those Jewish people over there. Is that what he's doing? You think Jesus came to the earth looking for Jewish people to save? In his instructions to his disciples, we looked already two, two or three, about six weeks ago now. In his instructions to disciples, he says, go first where? To the places of the house of Israel. First, it doesn't mean only, first. And as a result, we saw in Paul's ministry, follow this of course, Paul was so convinced about this, and it was the phenomenon. It wasn't so much the, the law or the, or the rule about going to Jewish people. He saw the phenomena of people coming to Christ through the gospel being preached from every nation and kindred and tribe. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? And tongue. Those that we think we're going to see in heaven are not going to be Jews people over there in one place, and we other people are going to be behind them. We're all going to be one in Christ. We believe that, don't we? And that's not some universal thing that just happened to start with Jesus. It's something that was awakened and opened. Commentaries, they're, they're, a little, there's a, they're consistent on this. They say Jesus, almost as if he started this. He started this new emphasis to Gentiles. I don't think that's 
what's going on here. I think what he did, he's now awakening a time frame. He's awakening a new kingdom, a new rulership of God coming into existence by himself as his Messiah. And in this kingdom, it has persons who are responsive to him, his people, from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue, as it says throughout the book of Isaiah and elsewhere. And so as a result, this forms kind of a a backdrop for this. And we see against it, I want to mention this again, I'll I'll go quickly with this, I'm not going to uh, take a lot of time for this particular subject, but the, the eschatological view, the view of how the end comes, the end of what? We think of the end of the age, you know, we were kind of joking this morning about what song we should sing at the end, you know, like um, coming again, he's coming again, we're looking in the clouds for Jesus to come back. Well, we, have a, we generally have an expectation, an eschatological expectation of the end, and the end means that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rapture people and, and you know, all kinds of very exciting things are going to happen. We can talk about that in detail some other time. We have a couple years to do it. That's what we did through our Revelation study anyway. But simply stated, the Jewish people believed that from creation to the coming of the Messiah was once one age. It was the age of Satan's rule. Messiah would come, he would defeat Satan, he would throw off Satan, and then he would rule from Jerusalem for a long time. No change in No cataclysmic change, the heavens wouldn't change, nothing would change. It would simply be a change of rulership, of rule. So you have the old age when Satan ruled, and the new age when the Messiah ruled, or God ruled. And that was the simple teaching of the kingdom of God. And everybody had that expectation. And so when they saw Jesus, because the Messiah had certain characteristics that he would bring with him, he would heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out lepers, preach to the poor. You're even writing Isaiah. All these things the Messiah would do. And so they saw this person doing all these things, and so they thought, this is the time of the end of what? The old age. It's the end of the old age, the beginning of the new age. The end of Satan's rule, the beginning of God's rule. And so they had this expectation. It just grew. Everybody except those who were invested in the old age. They didn't really want a Messiah. They wanted to continue to have Israel being the authority and powerful influence of the people. And of course, that is out in front of that whole thing is the Pharisees, who were the investigators, you know, the ones that kind of go among the people and watch them and write and teach them something if they can, or accuse them of something if they can, or write them up and send their name to Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem sends the big guys, the big Pharisees, they come. Isn't that pretty much what's happening right here? Look at the beginning, it says. Verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Remember we saw this when Jesus went into Matthew's house and sat down with Matthew? You, know, you touch the money, man, and you're going you're gonna to get the big dogs coming after you real quick. And that's exactly what that happened then. And something near that is happening now as they come again to examine Jesus, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the persons who were out front. They're the ones that were the closest link between the people of Israel and Judaism, the the hierarchy of Judaism. And so they come again. They're now in Capernaum again. The Walking on the water is over. Feeding of 5,000 is over. People are still thronging both Jesus and now his disciples are being thronged. You know, when they went out on their missionary journey, they came back and it said the people followed them. And then when in their boat going to that place where Jesus was going to take them to a place of solitude, which ended up being a pretty big party. 5,000 people, men being fed. And they followed from town to town and they kept saying they recognized them. Who's them? Now they're recognizing disciples. The second stage, they're recognizing the other persons because they're the ones that preached the gospel to them. They're the ones who also could, were working miracles. And as a result, they're seeing a lot of very quick rise of a movement now. It's not just 
Jesus, this guy who has a magic, you know, magic robe that can heal a few people, and cast out some devils, you know, preaches in a, in a unique way and people are responsive to him. Now he sees disciples that are starting to have the same thing. And so you have a movement that's starting. And what Jesus doing in his movement, instead of, got 5,000 men. What would you do if you had 5,000 men and their wives and children? Could be as much as 15 or 20,000 people there. What would, what would you do if you had that kind of success? As I said last time, it's a great time to start a good church, right? No, he shushes them away. Go, go, go. Go back, go, go away. Disciples, don't look at any of this stuff. Just go find us someplace else to be. And as a result, we see him bringing in something that is God's plan, God's will, God's work. Something that was certainly going to be, have every dynamic, every powerful dynamic of what had been prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, but it wasn't going to be as simple as simply throwing off the current, we read this this morning in that passage of scripture, didn't we? In that reflection of praise, that all these nations, start naming nations that put the boot on Israel. Those were the pressers, those were the Satans that were there all through history. And they were longing for someone to come, the Messiah to come, and just overpower this person. Even Isaiah's prophesying it. It's going to happen. The oppressor's going to be thrown away. It was a powerful desire they had. I feel it in politics all the time, no matter who's in the office. I, I feel this feeling of hopelessness start coming over me. To the point, I don't want, like my, I have a, somebody, Someone who listens to these sermons. And this somebody said, just recently, when visiting with me, I don't watch the news anymore. I don't watch this stuff. I don't want to know about politics. I want to just raise my family. I want to have my job. I want to you know, have my friendships. I want to have church. I don't want to know anything about what's going on in the world. <laughs> so that's great until you know you start being required to learn Chinese or something, you know. But it's just because there's a feeling that's just, just hopelessness. I just, there's something wrong. I wish it would go away. Is there someone who's going to be raised up to be the defender of all this, of righteousness? Is there someone, like Job's cry, if only there was someone to defend me. And now that someone is finally here in this text. And believe me, we look at Jesus in the same way today, don't we, in a lot of cases. He's going to return our nation to its Christian roots. Dick Halverson used to say that if first century Christians had penned their hopes to Constantine when he became the first, quote, Christian emperor, that Christianity would have died when he died. Always stood aloof. We've always had a different master, a different king, a different Lord and Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. So as these Pharisees come and talking to Jesus, we first of all, you know, we saw this thing where he kind of slapped at the idea of, of the kingdom of God by dismissing all these people. He didn't want the people to have the wrong impression, but now he's got the, he got the snakes in front of him. And these guys have already written him up. They've already written him up because when he was first in Capernaum and they came in and they listened to him after he called Matthew as a disciple. And he preached that. He preached and they, he confronted, they confronted him then. And he pushed back against them. And then it says, and the ones who came from Jerusalem, the second stage, it's getting more and more evident that this person is someone who really has to be dealt with. This kind of stuff could get somebody killed. They wanted to kill him. They went out to think of ways they could kill him. So they just want to rattle this guy. And so they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. You know, I think every time I sat down to dinner, I'd have my, my mother would say, you boys wash your hands? And, you know, you could just... <laughs> I'm just thinking you didn't wash your shirt, you know, <laughs> did you wash your hands? <laughs> so get up, everybody, get up right now and go wash your hands. 
I'm not sitting at this table with this filthy hands all around me. And so you think that's what they're talking about. Here's these disciples. What are they doing all day? They've been, you know, whatever they're doing. They've got, you know, what, is a, what does a fisherman's hands look like? Matthew's the only guy with any manicures there, you know? The rest of these guys are just a bunch of salt of the earth with dirt under their fingernails. Is that what he's talking about? Is, they're talking about washing your hands? No, far from it. And Matthew gives a little commentary on this. You notice there's a parenthesis there. As if it's an aside. It's an editorial comment that Matthew brings to the text at this point. He says the Pharisees and all the Jews. Now the, all the Jews is the Sadducees. He's talking about the scribes. He's talking about the, the lawyers. All of them. The ones that reside in Jerusalem particularly. The ones that are keepers of the law. As I said, which law are we talking about? We're talking about the Mishnah law, We're talking about the Tsefta law. Tsefta wasn't in existence at that time, but it was coming into existence, particularly after 70 AD. And so he gives this parenthetical thought. He says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless, they're, unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Holding to the oral law. The law that came as an explanation. We see within, just to clarify something real quick, we see within the law itself, we see the statement of the law and then the, the outwork of the law. One is called the written law and then there's the outwork. And we see Moses, you know, trying people and trying situations. And so we think things like, you know, the classic one of the, if your ox gets out and gores your neighbor's ox, what are you supposed to do? It says thou shalt not kill. What are you supposed to do? What happens if, you know, someone's up working on a house and they drop something and kill somebody by dropping a tool on them or something? What do you do? Is that just kill you just life for life? And so we see this application of the law. We see that already. Um, it's called the casuistic um, the casuistic element of the law. There's the apodictic, which is thou shalt and thou shalt not, and there's a casuistic, which is how you apply the law. So this is already going on right within the law itself. That's why some people will, will say this, the first five books are the books of law, and everything else is some kind of a historical or application of the law. But they've gone a little bit further than that. And, and this was a time, as I said, when Gentiles were rising in the communities, of the Jews, business, especially with something that's incorporated, who you hire and who can rise up through business, and are they Gentiles or Jews, and keep away from the Gentiles, and this whole thing just kind of came into a huge conflict. There was a huge tension between Jews and Gentiles. And so it says this is ceremonial washing. It's primarily when you wash your hands, you want everybody to know that you're not Gentile. You're not associated with Gentiles. The Gentiles were the biggest unclean thing you could have around you. When Peter had his vision about this very same subject, he goes down and where are the two guys that want to come into his house? Did they knock on the door? He said there's two people right now down there, Cornelius' household. Were they Jews or Gentiles? I can see the house he's in and they're out there like this, washing their hands real quick outside there. Here's two guys that are Gentiles. We're washing our hands. We don't want anything to do with them. In fact, we're doing it in the front yard. So everybody knows all of them down the block, they're Jews. We're not, we're not going to have these Gentiles around us. Peter goes down and not only calls them to the front door, he says, come on in. <laughs> Poor Levi or Abraham, wherever the guy's name is, his house, this whole house is completely defiled now. And then not only that, but... Peter then leaves with them. They see him leaving with the two Gentiles, goes to their house, and a Jew goes into a Gentile house. All these things are ceremonial, unclean. And where do you get it from? Tradition of the elders. It was to keep people away from things that they believed the law was going to, they're going to be in violation of the law as far as being impure, trying to relegate and delegate righteousness. How you keep righteous is you stay away from people. You wash with certain kind of utensils. The first thing he talks about just simply teaching uh, people. They come from the marketplace. They do not eat unless they wash. Why? 
because there's all kinds of disease in the marketplace? No, because there's all kinds of diseased people in the marketplace. Go to the marketplace, it's not just Jew marketplace and Gentile marketplace. You're going to the marketplace, there's, there's, there's a whole conglomeration of things that are there. They wash their hands because they want to be pure from the people that are in the marketplace. And they observe many other traditions, <coughs> such as <coughs> the washing of cups, the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. Now, if it was a glass cup or a fired clay cup that has a glaze on the outside, you didn't have to wash that because that wasn't unclean. But if it was a clay cup without being, uh, having glaze on it, you know, fired in a, in, a, in, a, in a kiln, then you'd have to wash that because it would be unclean. And it got down to the simplest little stupid things over and over. It was cups and pitchers. If the pitcher was one that was, wait a minute, wait a second, is that clean? Oh yeah, okay. This would be a clean pitcher. Because see, it can't, it can't somehow be, a, it holds, it has one purpose, it's actually holding water. But if it's some kind of fancy thing with a top on it, like a teapot, boy, there's all kinds of possibilities for contamination in there. You know, somebody might, you can't examine the water, you can't examine where it came from. Maybe a Gentile touched that water. Who, who put this water in here? I mean, I'm serious. Who, no, just kidding. <laughs> and it says even kettles. Now, the word kettle, if you, unless you have a New American Standard Bible, of course, New American Standard will think they're the, they're the new American standard, which is American standard, but they think that they are the, the standard. And in many ways, it's a very wonderful translation. But you'll notice that there's a footnote there, isn't there? And so they say kettles. You know, what's the difference between a kettle and a pitcher? Kettle, you can heat, right? Pitcher, you just pour with. But you know, that's a word that's un, that they found that's not really translatable. They don't understand what that word is in the Greek language. The only time it appears in the Bible is right there. So they really don't know what it is, but they think there's a range of meaning, and it's more likely that it means a couch. That's close, right? It's about the same thing. <laughs> a kettle or a couch. It doesn't even start with the same letters. There's, no, there's only a couple letters that are in both of them. But why would a couch be something could be defiled? Because a woman might sit on it. You know, a woman might sit on it, or somebody that's unclean might have sat on it. Maybe the person who made it, or somebody walked in the shop of somebody who made it, and a Gentile sat on that couch. My goodness, then that couch is really defiled. This goes on and on and on. It's just, it's, there's no, minutia. It just means nothingness with large volumes. Mark's parenthetical thoughts are, Another indication who he's writing this to his audience, right? You don't have to write this to Jewish people. They know this like the back of their hand. Matthew doesn't include this kind of detail in his gospel. Who does? Mark, why? He's in Rome. He's writing to Roman persons who have become Christians. His audience is Rome. And so you see that second tier of context. You see the context of, of Jesus himself in this situation. Then you see Mark's context. He feels it's important to explain to people what this means. For you see... The Pharisees and the Jews do not eat and so forth. You see, you see this now? You understand now? So, as a result of this, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Again, the same thing appears. The tradition of the elders. See what their emphasis is? The tradition of the elders. The things that have come to be these safeguards, these fences around contamination from the nations of the earth. Because God in the Old Testament tells us, tells the, tells the Jews, don't associate with Gentiles of any kind. Don't marry them. Don't associate with them. Don't let them into your house. Don't go into their house. Don't eat their food. All the way from the time of Paul, you see this food sacrificed to idols. And what does the Jewish community, which was primarily Jewish at that time, what do they do with this stuff? This food sacrificed to idols, these strange things. And so it continues on. 
even after the time of the revelation of Jesus' bringing this, it continues on. It continues on today. Racial prejudices, all kinds of meaningless sense of purification. Hmm. They eat food with defiled hands. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? It's so embedded in their viewpoints that this is the presupposition of anybody who understands anything about Judaism. It's like evolution today. You know, evolution is becoming our presupposition for everything. It all happened. This world is billions of years old. We don't blink. Nobody says it's billions of years old. It started from some bang that came from a little thing that nothing made it happen. Oh, what? Wait a minute. Nothing made it, wait, stop. Nothing made this thing happen. It just started. It, it just happened. I said, well, what are you, what's next, Pastor? What, what's your big beef, man? You're, you're denying science? Well, is that really science? Nothing from nothing brings nothing. Come on now. Sing it. It's a little question. I remember years ago, she was listening to, a, you know, it was in a class we were holding, and this discussion was taking place, and she worked for a, a group of doctors. And they're just going on and on about, you know, origins, and nothing happened, and nothing came from nothing. And she, and she stopped. She said, you know, I, I just, I thought, I'm just, just a secretary or somebody, but I thought that only nothing could come from nothing. And the woman says, <laughs> he had nothing to say <laughs> because it's true. Oh, help us, Lord. As a result, this whole thing is built on nothing that relates to the law itself. And here before them is the Word of God, second member of the Trinity in complete unity with the man, Jesus Christ, sitting in their presence, <laughs> the Word created the world. The Word brought the Scriptures into existence. The Word, the Word of God, the second member of the Trinity, the Father, the Word, the Spirit, the One who is eternally begotten of the Father, Eternally begotten of the Father. This second member of the Trinity is before them and they're saying to Him, why don't your disciples break the law? Why don't they take our opinion on the law instead of your opinion on the law? The Constitution clearly makes room for blah, 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 blah. Well, the Constitution is a little book. You can get one, right? You can read it. There's nothing in there about half the things that people are quoting that it says it's in there. Nothing. It's just traditions. We've got to move. We've got to redefine things because our world is changing. Before long, it won't even make any difference what the Bible says. Before long, it won't even make any difference what the Constitution says. One person in our government this last week said we should get, a work, get rid of the Constitution. This person is one of the most powerful people currently, at least information-wise, in our government. Being listened to by millions of people. We just ought to get rid of that book. One of our Supreme Court justices in the last two years made the statement that what, they said, what, con what constitution should a new country adopt in order to start a country? And she said, well, maybe, and she named some other country. Supreme Court Justice, who is ruling on the what? Constitution. Oh. Be careful when you put your trust. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. These are getting to be serious little songs. It's not just a song. We sing that song. Some trust in chariots and whoo, stop. Get it, man. Let's go. Home in horses. Now it's getting serious. Now it's getting serious. It was serious in Rome, by the way. Mark's audience is a serious foe. 
They have a serious foe against them. He replied. Can't wait to hear Jesus reply, can you? Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? That's a person who says they believe one thing and does something else. That's not the basic meaning of hypocrite. Hypocrite is a person, it comes from the theatrical context. It's an actor. It's a person who takes on a role, a new role that has never been seen before, and they act it out as if that new role is really an old role. They impersonate people. He's actually calling them, you are impersonators. You have impersonated a teacher of the law, but you're not teaching the law. You're teaching something that is believed to be true about the law, and it's become so long that you don't even know what the original is. You're like hypocrites. You are hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips. I mean, do you watch movies? We love movies. I'll tell you what, I, I get moved in movies. I get moved in telephone commercials. Hi, son. Hi, Dad. How you doing, son? Well, Dad, I called you to tell I love you. And I'm going... (laughs) And my family's going, okay, watch Dad. He's going to cry. Look, see? (laughs) It's a commercial. We see people that move our hearts. And we assume... Was it Morgan Freeman? I love Morgan Freeman. Don't you love Morgan Freeman? Great actor. He did this thing when he was some kind of nuclear scientist, something like that. And he, they, I think they even honored him for some kind of award for this, and some lower level besides Academy Award. And then afterwards, they, they, this one person says, boy, you're, you're just amazing, man. You, the insight that you have. You know, tell me about your scientific background. He says, I'm an actor, man. <laughs> I'm an actor. I play some other role besides the real me. I don't play the real him, and I don't play the real me. I'm an actor. (laughs) Jesus said, you guys are right. You're just actors. You draw. You apparently, as it is written, he says, these people honor me with their lips. They never miss a line. But their hearts are far from me. If Jesus is just talking about himself, he's the word. You, draw, you don't draw him near to the word. If he's quoting Isaiah, it's the same person. The word. You're far from me. You worship me in vain. Teaching. They're merely human rules. They're human insights. These Ten Commandments that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai, they literally changed the world. You compare it to, and, and what do we hear today? Well, ancient, they say ancient treaty documents. The, the Code of Hammurabi. It was the most civilized thing that had ever been. You think that's civilized? You better be, learn how to swim, ladies, if you're a, you want to live by Hammurabi's code. First thing you do is learn how to swim. If your husband doesn't like the way you cook, if you don't like what you said, you're not doing what you... You accuse her, and what, guess what they do? They throw her in the river. And if she survives the river, then she's innocent. But if she doesn't survive the river, well, she's dead. That's, what, what, how, that's great justice, right? Ladies, you want to join up? No, it didn't change. It it made a barbaric world somewhat less barbaric, but the law, the coming of the Hebrew law literally changed ethics. It changed morality. It changed truth. It's being set aside here for human rules. You let go of the commands of God and you're, you're holding on to human traditions. And he continued... You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. 
Which commandment is that? You sure? Fifth. Yeah. That's close. <laughs> Honor. <laughs> so I've written down Clark. That's why I know it. <laughs> Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is put to death. I don't see any of this, you know, today. I had a couple ruthless moments with my father and mother. Look back on those things and you read these kind of texts of scriptures and think, man, that was, if I'd, been, if I'd been there, I'd be dead. But honor your father and mother. And the cursing of your father and mother. The cursing someone, wishing they're dead or wishing they're gone or you know, hatred of them. They'd be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother. Now, it was Jewish tradition. It still exists in some ways, and I'm really hoping it exists in my family. Toward the end of my life, my kids are going to take care of me. Right? Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, you, the Amish. First guy that owns a farm, he builds a big farmhouse. He builds a, builds a barn, builds a And after he gets old, they build another little addition on us. That's where his... He lives and his family takes the sons, one of his sons takes over the whole rest of the house. That's where he lives. Okay? And we see this generation by generation care for the elderly and particularly your parents. Being sure that they're taken care of. Not just taking all the money they say finally kick, kick off, you know, and leave me something. But the care of parents was something that was very, very important. In the original concept of what the law teaches. In fact, it's the only command with a promise. When you honor your parents, you will have long life in the earth. And you nullify the word of God. That's the word of God. By your tradition that you've handed down. And what was that tradition? The tradition was something called Corban. Corban was part of the, and still is part of the Mishnah, where you make a dedication of some portion of your wealth. Okay, you personally. And you say, I'm going to dedicate you know, 50% of my wealth to the temple. Okay? Well, Corbin didn't just take your 50% then. It was paid once you die. So once you die, it's then paid. And up till then, even though it was designated, you could still have control over it and its use. And because you weren't trusted to do that, when you did this before the temple and before the priests and you made this sacrificial future gift, they would then control your use of it and not allow you to use it for anything except the purposes of the temple. However, if you were a Pharisee, you were a teacher of the law, you were a priest, you could have full access to use that all the days of your life. If you just use it up on yourself during the days of your life. And the regulations were different for different classifications of people. Someone says, I'm going to give all my wealth. Like, it, it, who was it? Zacchaeus made some kind of comment like that. I'm going to give half my wealth away. If I've stolen anything, I'm going to give half the wealth. This is boast of giving. Now, hopefully, he was not in this category. Don't really know. I just brought, bring it up because he made a boast of wealth in the future. But as a result, it would deny even your parents. Let's suppose you did die and your parents were still alive and your parents were, were needed your support and they needed this help. Well, this couldn't transfer to your parents or any part of it to your parents because the temple controlled it. And so when he said, you keep it from being used, he's talking about the interpretation of that gift is keeping it from being used by the person who's making it. And you nullify the Word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And then he says, and you do many things like that. You nullify the law in many ways like that. He's already given now two 
first example was the washing and the ceremonial cleanliness, and now he's giving this one. This, boy, this is, I wonder how many of those guys had already used this plan to control their wealth and not have to give it to their, anybody, including their parents. Still had full access to its youth. That's why he's talking to them. And Jesus then says, he turns to the crowd and he says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. And now he's going to say something that's going to rock everybody in the place. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. (laughs) If you understand anything about historic and current Hebrew or Jewish tradition and laws, the number one category of all of these rules and regulations falls in the area of food. What food you can eat, how much of it you can eat, against gluttony, against a whole bunch of things. All of these things fall into this area. Jesus is taking now his third swipe at this issue. By the way, you you know from poetic literature, which is the foundation for prophetic literature, poetic literature, that repetition of things, it makes an emphasis, right? Called parallelisms. And you see even, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The worlds and they that dwell therein. It's it's, it's repetition. It's a little bit different, but it's, it's repeating the same phrase. And it's very rarely done three times. Holy, holy, holy. Three times. Jesus gives three illustrations in Matthew 18 about forgiveness. And here he's giving three illustrations about what it means to be clean and what it means to be a person of the Word. Very important subject. It's not done in very many places throughout the New Testament. And so he makes this statement to them. It's what comes out of a person that defiles him. If anyone has ears to hear, now that's something in... New American Standard Bible, it's not in the, it's not in the Greek translation, the official Greek translation of the, Old, of the New Testament. And so in most Bibles, you see verse 16 just has brackets around it. Sometimes a little note saying this was not in earlier manuscripts, and it, has, has no, it really would not ever considered to be anything other than something that somebody shoved in there somewhere along the way. Just, 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 a, just a little thought on that. So verse 17, we go to verse 17, it says, After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Now, these guys are so used to having the Mishnah be the standard for their living that they don't even know what the original says. Don't even know. Very clear, that's what's happening here. They're not, you're not just saying, you dummies, don't you get it? You dull people, you're lazy. No, you're dull, you're unformed, you're distant from it. A dull person is somebody that's not close to anything. He's not he's distant or she's distant from things, discussions and so forth. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I feel like they're, going, they're almost going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, I thought you were talking about when you eat. <laughs> you're right. I am talking about when you eat. Nothing you eat defiles you. By the way, what's that word nothing mean? There is no example of anything that defiles you by eating it. Other than non-food. Something's going to make you sick. I love ether. I want to drink some of it. I love it. Whatever. Somebody's always going to step up and make something. They're dull too, by the way. Um... It doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Does that mean there's less calories and less fats and more carbohydrates and blah, 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 you want to lose some weight, don't eat these. There's a rationale behind trying something else. But you can eat ice cream all day long and it's not going to make you go to hell. So go for it, man. (laughs) And there are a lot of other illustrations of things more precious. 
that we think, oh, that didn't go away with the new covenant. I still can't eat that. Well, I can't eat shrimp no matter what I try. Because I, my throat starts closing and I get this. I, love, I could eat it until it makes me, it kills me. But I, I tell people, I don't eat shrimp. They say, wasn't that for religious purposes? I said, heck no, I love shrimp. But when I eat it, I puff up like a big blowfish. Just, it's, just, it's just common sense. He went on, what comes out of a person is not what defiles a person. By the way, do you believe that? Do you believe what he just said is true? Because already the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't, don't, no way you can go back to the source like that, buddy. You've got you to gotta follow what the elders told us. The elders told us. Boy, you know, my, why I say over and over, you hear me say this before, don't quote me. Don't go to somebody and say, my pastor says, my pastor tells me that such and such is true or false. My pastor believes in a rapture. My pastor doesn't believe in a rapture. Don't quote me. What does the Bible teach us? Not what some elder says, not what some wise person says. I had someone, I was having an argument with this person over something one time. And he and we're looking at scripture after scripture after scripture, and he's saying, Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you know what his final argument was? I'm sure there's somebody out there that knows the other side of this and they can defeat all this. My next door neighbor. I don't think he's ever going to listen to this sermon. If he does, listen again. Jehovah's Witness man. He's the head of a Jehovah's Witness thing. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. You believe that? No. No, Jesus is not the Alpha and Omega. Jehovah is the Alpha and Omega. We turn to what, the 22nd chapter of Revelation? I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, blah, 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 beginning and end, da, 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 da. And it goes down and says, I, Jesus, am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And he never saw that before. So he very quickly flips up his laptop. What's the answer? What's the answer? You know, you know what his answer to me was? Well, I'm sure that I'm sure I can give you an answer by the next time we talk. I said, we agree we're gonna look at the Bible, not the writings of Charles Taze Russell, okay? The Bible. What does the Bible teach? Thou shalt not, and that's what it means you shall not do it. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it's from within, out of the person's heart. That evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance. It's not, to, it's not hard to see the effects of what comes out of a person from a sinful heart, a compromised heart. And he says, and folly. Folly is just the nonsense that people adhere to. All these evils come from with inside a person. They defile him or her. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And then he just stops. He just stops. <laughs> I wonder if I said, man, this is a heavy teaching. Let's go out and get ourselves some shrimp. Let's go have some pork. I haven't had pork in a long time. Let's go have some pork. God's not, God's not setting up new rules on what you should eat and shouldn't eat. I mean, I've said, eating, it, has a, it has a benefit and a, and a detriment, doesn't it? But the case is, as Christians, our message is not, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, start doing that, start doing start that. These are the do's and don'ts of how you're supposed to live and how you're supposed to eat and what you're supposed to touch and what you're supposed to, who you're supposed to associate with and all this kind of stuff. John, don't date Catholic girls. Don't date those Catholic girls. I think Roger's mom told him that too, Chris. <laughs> I listened, he didn't. <laughs> Maybe it's good advice. But what is the word? 
What's the emphasis of the word? What covenant are we in? Are we in an old covenant that is righteousness is demonstrated by what you eat, what you, where you walk, who you associate with? What is righteous? In fact, Jesus said, the kingdom of God, is, or Paul said, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace and joy, righteousness of Christ, the peace of being at peace with God through Jesus Christ, and the joy of, that's our, that's our goal is to be joyful and praise Him for His goodness. Praise Him for the cross. Praise Him for what He's made us to be. That's what Jesus is saying. It doesn't take too many turns of a page in Mark to realize that that may not be a message for them. Not until after He died and rose again. But it's certainly a message for us. It's one thing to be indoctrinated to this and then to hear the truth of it and then you know it's so new that you don't get it all. There's something else when we have teaching, we have understanding, we have the Scriptures at our disposal, we see the whole thing, and we still are too dull to get it. Amen? He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Amen.